Hey guys, Ian here with another episode of Unleash and Unhinged, the podcast where we talk about all things dog. Dog training, dog behaviour, dog health, literally anything you can think about when it comes to dogs, we'll talk about on here. We hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Today we've got Jill Hassevort from Jack and Jill Dog Training. Welcome to the show, Jill. Hi, and thanks for having me here. My pleasure. Why don't we start off with just, if you don't mind, just telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Yeah, sure. So I'm Jill. My pronouns are she, they. I'm based outside of Detroit, Michigan in the United States, but I actually work with clients worldwide. Um, my business is entirely virtual at this point, which I've found to be um, most effective and beneficial for the sort of clients and cases that I work with. So I do specialize mostly in fear, reactivity, and aggression type cases. I do have a special interest in the topic that we're going to discuss today, which is cooperative care, which I think is very much related to those other um, sorts of behaviors. So, um, so that's what I, I do. I work with clients privately, group settings, and I have a membership program. Um, and I'm also a Karen Pryor Academy certified training partner. That's where I got my training education. Amazing. Thank you so much. I mean, personally, I've been a long time follower of you on social media. And as we were saying off air, the will Jack eat it? Will Jack do it? Uh, <laughs> will Jack do it? <laughs> it's yes. one of my all-time favorite uh, Instagram things to follow. So if anybody's interested, go and find Jill and watch, <laughs> see if the amazing Jack will chew it or not, because it is an ongoing yep. saga, very high drama. Um, yes, and just to clarify, Jack is my dog. So yes. the question is, <laughs> will he chew this particular food that <laughs> we're offering him? <laughs> Very, very high stakes question. Very high stakes. It's it's always the highlight of my week. Um, (laughs) As as you said, uh, we are going to be talking about cooperative care, which is such a cool topic. Uh, And it does, you're right, it goes hand in hand with uh, the things that you specialize in, in fear and reactivity. But before we dive into the topic of cooperative care too deeply, for somebody that isn't in the dog industry, what is cooperative care? Yeah, so I, I do think that with with this sort of definition, as with many definitions in dog training, you're probably, you could ask 10 dog trainers and you would get 10 different answers. <laughs> um, but personally, the way that I think about it and define it, so I would say that cooperative care is teaching your dog to not just tolerate or be okay with um, different parts of their routine care, um, but to also be an active and willing participant in the process. Um, and through that process, we aim to minimize stress as much as possible, make it as um, as positive an experience for both the human and the dog as possible, and and give our dogs as much choice in what's happening to them, because that's really what can make one of the big things that can make that experience more pleasant for them. Yeah. Like if we can give our dogs the opportunity to consent and some agency over their decisions, 
and I know I like those things. <laughs> so they're going to enjoy. They're going to enjoy the experiences that we put them through, right? Like as it yeah. often gets related, like to, um, and here's another dog trainer term, but like husbandry uh, mm-hmm. kind of activity. So things like grooming for the. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say like the care tasks, you know, husbandry is another sort of trainery term that we would use, but things like grooming, brushing, nail trims, toothbrushing, ear cleaning, but also um, things like putting on a harness or, you know, um, wiping their paws when they come inside the house, you know, giving baths, any, any sort of thing that I think is happening to them. Mm hmm. I think is really under the scope of cooperative care. And and I'm sure we'll talk, uh, we'll definitely talk about something called start button behavior in a little while, because that's very often correlated or, or um, associated with cooperative care. Um, but I use start button behaviors in basically all aspects of my training and, and anything that I'm pretty much anything that I'm, I'm teaching a client involves some sort of choice and some sort of consent or agency, like you were saying, um, and start button behaviors are a really easy way to provide more of that. So we wanted to think more broad scopes, like everything we're doing with our dogs can be cooperative, which mm-hmm. is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Like I couldn't agree more. And I love, I love that if we're going to dive into this, I want to, let's just go into it. We've brought up start buttons nice and early. Okay. Um, talk <laughs> us through it. Like what, how, what are they? How are they? How do they work? Let's, uh, I'm sure there's a lot of curious people out there right now. Yeah. And I, maybe folks have heard this term because I do think it's at least, you know, rather recently, it's sort of become like a hot topic in the dog training <laughs> it's community. Like a um, yeah. Buzzword, something that sounds really flashy and cool. Um, but when you, when you, when you break it down, it's, it's really quite simple. Um, it's really just sort of teaching your dog a way to say that they're ready for whatever it is, whether it's like ready to do the next repetition of, you know, a a behavior that you're working on or ready for this next step of the nail trim process, for example, I'll probably use nail trims as an example a lot because that's one of the biggest, (laughs) (laughs) biggest, um, biggest cooperative care tasks that people struggle with, um, myself included in the past. Um, so yeah, so essentially a start button behavior is a way that your dog says that they're ready. Um, and it's really great for you as a human or as the trainer or as the guardian because it makes things very clear for you. It makes things very clear for both of you. But especially for you as the trainer, because you know what you're looking for to go to the next step, essentially. And I think without start button behaviors, especially for newer trainers, which is sort of counterintuitive because something like a start button behavior sounds very advanced. Yeah. But I think it's especially helpful for more novice guardians and trainers because it makes things very clear, whereas with without a start button behavior, we're, we're still looking for how our dog's feeling about whatever we're doing, but it can, it can be harder to identify because sometimes when we're in the middle of it, we miss those more subtle body language cues, or we don't know so much about those subtle, those subtle body language cues. So we, we don't know what to look for. So a start button behavior is like a very clear thing that your dog can do that says they're ready for the next repetition or the next step. So, um, 
examples of those behaviors may be things like eye contact can sometimes be a start button behavior. Some of the ones you'll see very often would be like a chin rest or lying down flat on your side or lateral recumbency, your dog's side, not your side. <laughs> um, those are some of the more common ones. I think we see chin rest a lot used, but that doesn't have to be what you use. It really is. Um, I, I, always, I often like to let my dog decide what their start button behavior is going to be. And then I just, I just go off of what they're offering me. And then that comes in, that turns into our start button. Yeah. Hopefully that sort of yeah, like, gives well, everyone a, a sense of what we're talking about. Yeah. Like I, for a long time, didn't know that I was well, one for a long time. I didn't know what start buttons were. So of course I didn't know that I was using them. Um, mm-hmm, <laughs> but, um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Some, some, when I was interacting with the dogs that I'm working with, I, intuitively actually used the word ready. And so mm-hmm. before I was uh, about to start engaging with the dog, I'd go ready. And I didn't know that I would, like I, said, I didn't know I was using a start button, but what I was looking for every single time was an indicator, whatever the dog decided, every dog was slightly different, but a re- an indicator as to, yeah, I'm, I'm good to go. And a lot mm-hmm. of the time it was eye contact. Sometimes, you know, you, you're going to get like the dog, maybe like, run up like get closer to you and start like, mm-hmm. offering more engagement because it was a very messy start button that I didn't had obviously not fine-tuned or anything like that but it was something that even in the day I, I would say even like 15 years ago when I was using aversives I still intuitively wanted to offer the dog the opportunity to opt in and so when I learned that about the negatives of aversive training a long, long time ago, it was so easy for me and so natural for me to move away because I was like, of course I want the dog's consent. I didn't realize I was doing that. Like, so the more I learned about consent training, the more important it became to me. And that was just from my gut feeling, you know, of course, from, from day one when I was working with dogs, it's like, I feel like I want the dogs to be involved in this. I want, I don't want to be forcing dogs to do things. I think the only times I ever did, and this is a, all of a sudden gone off on a stupid tangent about when I did the opposite to cooperative care a very long time ago, which I didn't necessarily need to talk about today. But um, the uh, <laughs> it's okay. Maybe I have a I might have a story about that too that I can share. <laughs> um, it was just it, the only times I was ever doing the opposite to cooperative care was things that I'd seen on TV where I thought I knew what I was doing, and then. As I studied and as I learned from others about how, you know, try to try to use less force, man, um, mm-hmm. then um, it be, the idea and the concept of giving my dog's choice agency and working with corporate care became so important in my everyday life, not just with dogs. It was, yeah, it was huge for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to hear you. Yeah. Mind. So I. <laughs> yeah, well, I do have a good example of that because so so Jack, who is Jack and Jill, he's the the dog that inspired all of this, <laughs> all of this whole thing. Um, wouldn't be here without him. He was my first dog that was mine as an adult, so he learned a lot. I, I learned on him a lot, which is unfortunate for him sometimes. <laughs> We've all been there Um, as, you know, as I was learning and learning what to do and what not to do. But so coming back to the example of nail trims, because I think what 
what's modeled for us a lot of the time with care-based things is a lot of heavy handed force and just sort of like get it done, you know, pin the dog down and do the thing and, and make it happen whether they like it or not. Um, and so I found that I was just using, he didn't like it. He didn't like the trims, obviously. Right. Um, so I was using just more and more and I was having to get more and more, unfortunately creative about how I was, how I was restraining him or, you know, getting multiple people involved, like all this just to be able to trim a nail. And it just sort of, it was just this like downward spiral where it was just getting, and I, you know, that's, that's, we know that's often the case with many aversive, right? Aversive type training. It's like, you just have to kind of escalate it because, you know, your dog's getting desensitized to that level. Um, so, so that was like the spiral we were going down. And then when I started learning about cooperative care, people are often very surprised at how the opposite is true where if we let our dogs say no thank you then they start to say yes more and that's something i i often get questioned or pushback about with with cooperative care it's like well if i let my dog decide when they want me to trim their nails they're never gonna want me to do it or like when they want to take a bath they're never gonna want that and it's it's really counterintuitive because when they know they can say no they're just more likely to say yes um, and so when, then we don't have to use those heavy handed restraint sort of things and they can start to opt in more and it's just less stressful for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's not just a physical restraint that we're imposing. We're, we're putting, it's a mental block. Like we become restrictive as, as personalities towards them or it's the way they they'll view us they'll view us as being restrictive and of course that's just going to put walls up the dog's just gonna go no i really don't like engaging with you like this like Mm -hmm. every time you bring Mm -hmm. the thing out the nail clippers or the Mm -hmm. run the bath or pull out the harness you become Mm -hmm. a bit of a dick and (laughs) i don't want to be involved whereas of course if we reverse that and it's a super good point because as soon as we reverse that conversation and we become more pleasant, we become more engaging, we start actually listening and get and valuing their opinion on it. Well, of course they're going to engage in more dialogue. It's just when we say mm-hmm. it like that, that's, that's how, uh, that's one of my ways to kind of reverse that, that pushback that you just mentioned. It's mm-hmm. opens people's mind up to it and and likewise imagine if we're in this conversation with the client and we go no they're just doing it they will promise you and just shut them down rather than having a dialogue right right right. yeah sure the way that we're teaching our human learners (laughs) is uh yeah should be should be the same as how we're teaching our dogs yeah and i i think another example even if we are being pleasant um but we're you know just sort of making these things happen with our dogs, but we're being nice about it or say we think we're using food. So that must be nice. Must be positive if we're using food during the thing. Good intentions actually, isn't always good enough. Right, right. Can actually uh, not be the best because that can still put a lot of pressure on the situation, essentially, you know, coercing your dog into, hey, do this thing or you don't get this treat. And just really sort of, <laughs> pressuring them into 
I don't want to say the word cooperating because that's, uh, yeah, yeah. that's what we want, but complying, um, complying. Yes, exactly. Complying. Yeah. Um, rather than actually cooperating, they're just, they just feel they have no other choice but to do it. And that can be whether we are physically forcing them or we're coercing them using things like high value treats and that sort of thing. Yeah. And I, I see people do it all the time. They don't mean to. It's again, really well intended. It's the mm-hmm. indecent proposal. It's like, Hey, mm-hmm. do you want to do the thing? No, I'll pay you. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, it's gross. Mm-hmm. Like, don't touch mm-hmm. me. Like, it's, it's not good. Yeah. It's not, and you get, a, you might get away with it once or twice. Yeah. But, but yep. in succeeding in those, those two, I, I'm going to put wins in inverted commas because they're not really wins because what we've done is poison the relationship. And for the longevity of that relationship, it's gone backwards. Mm-hmm. Yep. Sense. Yeah. And, and that's, that's, that's another thing to be mindful of is you have to think really carefully if that's what, if that's going to be your strategy. And sometimes that is your strategy. Like if this is a one-off thing where I just really need to get this to happen. And I know that the, the least stressful way to get this to happen right now is to bribe essentially using food and the, and it's a unique situation where I can, you know, work backwards or work around it in the future. Sometimes that is the right choice. But if, if this is sort of a routine thing, um, like if it is nail trims or if it is getting an injection at the vet, like these are things your dog's going to need to be able to tolerate for their entire life. And so, yes, you really want to think carefully about whether you're going to use that big food distraction. Another thing to remember um, is that well, the order of classical conditioning matters. Yeah. So if my food comes out and I show it to my dog and I present it in such a way, then I do something my dog doesn't like or thinks is scary. Then that order is going to, that association is going to go backwards. So my dog's going to start to believe and know from their learning history that when my human looks at me that way and holds food, (laughs) something bad is going to happen. So I'm going to start to mistrust that picture. I'm going to start to avoid this situation and it can really get in the way of your relationship with your dog, your, your training relationship and just your living with them. I I had a client last week and they were such a lovely, gentle family with this dog. Um, But it was that, and they tried so hard to help this dog with its uh with its reactivity with food and tried to use you know they they were never going to use aversives on their dog and the guys were like okay every time we see a dog we're going to offer the dog food and we're going to you know basically try to use food as a distraction but they thought they were you know doing the right thing and you know i'd rather them do that than break Mm -hmm. out aversive tools of course right right it's got to a point now um with it, this dog separate from this also has a scream response, which is really intense. So if something spooks the dog, it's prone to scream, screeching. And it's not a small dog. It's a, it's a pincer, but like, no. Oh, Christ. But either way, it's, it's quite a, <laughs> it's a medium sized dog and very loud. Um, it's got to a point now, if you offer this dog food via the hand, it screams. Yeah, uh, because the the association is that mm-hmm. means there's a dog coming, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is mm-hmm. and these guys were mortified. They were just like trying so hard not mm-hmm. to, to do the wrong thing by this dog, and yeah. they didn't realize like it was such an innocent mistake. 
Um, mm-hmm. And that's why there's sometimes we say like it's good intentions. We need to mm-hmm. we need to understand those mechanics of counting, uh, mm-hmm. classical conditioning. Otherwise, we yeah get, get a yeah. bit backwards. Yeah, and I mean that's not that's no shade at those guardians. No, no, they no, were doing the very best that they knew to do, and and you know you mentioned we'd rather they do that than use aversives, and that's not just because we think aversives are mean, <laughs> which you know that's a whole other rabbit hole. But it's also <laughs> the the fallout or the side effects of using food in a messy way we can pretty easily undo that mm. in a lot of cases versus, you know, using something else in a, in its attended way, right. Even like correctly, quote unquote, yeah. um, it's going to have, it's going to be a lot harder to undo that damage. Um, but that's again, a little tangent. Even like a, an example of a cooperative care, uh, one that I messed up with my own dog currently, um, when I go to clean his ears, so being a spaniel, he gets the uh, ear infection. And if I go over to the cr- treat counter, it is game on. He's like, yes, yes, we're definitely getting treats. If I turn around and and do anything apart from this one thing, the dog is so happy. But as soon as I turn around and sit down on the sofa with the treat, boom, he's the other side of the room. Because he knows that I'm about to go and get the ear medicine. I'm about to go... Going, he's just worked out the whole pattern. He's like, don't mm-hmm. do that. Don't mm-hmm. do that one thing that I hate. And they're so good at picking up on those those context cues. And yeah, they learn those things really quickly. And we can, you know, that can backfire on us. And <laughs> that can happen like with what you're describing. Um, but we can also use that to our advantage in cooperative care. Um, because dogs are so good at picking up on those patterns and and knowing what's going to happen next and after that. And so if we make our cooperative care tasks predictable in such a way that we're starting at a non-stressful starting point, then that, that pattern, that um, ability for our dogs to pick up on those patterns is very beneficial because then they it's further they know what to expect. And when things are predictable, they are less scary. <laughs> speaking, you know, speaking as a person with anxiety, right, as I'm sure many people can relate to, um, you know, if I'm going into a situation, um, like I'm going to a new place and I've never been there before and, I, you know, I don't know what it's like if I know where to park and I know which entrance to go into and then who do I talk to after that? You know, if I just know those simple simple little logistical things and <laughs> know what to expect, I feel a lot more calm and a lot less anxious. And so the same is true for our dogs, that predictability mitigates the aversiveness of the experience. And, and that's true for corroborative care. But again, it's true for any sort of behavior modification that we are working on with them. Yeah. So I think that's something else we should, I'd love people to just be aware that because there are patterns it actually means that we can help more because there are patterns. As soon as there's not a pattern, mm-hmm. as, as a dog trainer, I start to panic. I'm like, oh, shit, this is so unpredictable. I have no idea when this is going to happen next. So part of my job when I'm doing my, you know, when I'm assessing why the behavior is happening, the main thing I'm looking for is patterns. And me getting the treats and turning around and sitting on the sofa and my dog leaving the room is a pattern. 
but it's a pattern I'm in control of. And mm-hmm. that's really, that in itself is something that people can be, use as it. Yeah. If it could be really frustrating, if I continue to choose to go down that pattern, it will become right. more frustrating. Right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but yep. if I go, okay, I'm aware of where this sequence and this pattern deviates to, to a direction I don't want it to go. So I'm not going to go mm-hmm. down that route. I'm going to change my own pattern mm-hmm. and I'm going to help the dog learn a positive prediction rather than a negative one. And all of a sudden that's empowering for me, which then empowers the dog. And that really helps the relationship no end, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so patterns can work against us. Like you were saying, if we do get sort of zeroed in on this one, one, one track and we just, dig ourselves into a further rut with that. But if we can identify this, so that's anytime someone comes to me with a cooperative care question, whether it's one of my clients or one of the people in their membership, I'm, I'm asking really specific questions. I'm like, okay, which part of this is the part where your dog freaks out or which part of this is the part that's aversive to your dog? Is it when they see the tool or the instrument that you are using? Is it when you go to a certain spot, like you were saying, um, is it when you, um, you know, you stand in this location and you look at them, right? If you're like standing next to the bathroom and you look at them, is that when they take off, right? So think about where those, where those patterns have been previously and where we want to switch it. So we want to change that, what that picture is looking like and create a new pattern. And that enables us to change the behavior a lot more easily than if we are trying to work against the grain and fight that extinction of the previously patterned behaviors. And again, this is so true about any sort of behavior modification that we are doing, right? Yeah. I think um, just to be really clear as well to anybody that um, is new to this, the pattern we're looking for, I don't know if we've actually stated this out loud yet, um, because I think it's something very familiar to you and I, but Sure. is um we want to introduce any we want to introduce something and then make it positive so for example coming into the bathroom make that bit positive like even if that's just two feet into the bathroom if that's where your dog needs the support offer the support there and then take pressure mm-hmm. off make it easy for them reintroduce make it positive again and we build those stages up at the dog's pace like on that, on at the dog's pace, I feel like a lot of the cooperative care, like the grooming, the nail trimming, the harness on, I think something that we all have done at some point is tried to lump the entire activity into one go. And that's often where it kind of goes wrong. Like, I'm going to go and get my dog's nails trimmed, all of them. In one city. <laughs> right, right. right. <laughs> and so, like, even if we did get away with a couple, very quickly that dog was going to learn, you know, if we go, oh, yes, we got one. And then, oh, yes, we got another one. Oh, yes, we got another one. It's very addictive for us to go, yeah, I'm going to keep going because it's going so well. Because um, we've been reinforced, right? And reinforced yeah, behavior <laughs> continues, right? <laughs> uh huh. But it, it can, like, even with the harness on. You know, I just want to get, I want to go, or it's not even there. It's not even about the harness. It's, I want right. to take the dog for a walk. And right. they, that, that really intimate interaction where we grab something that takes control away from our dogs, put it in the, onto the dog and strap them in. 
that gets bypassed in our brain. That's just a, a means mm-hmm. to an end for us. Whereas for the dog, that's mm-hmm. a really intimate, restrictive activity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we take that for granted, right? Like it's like, oh, I should put the harness on, take my dog for a walk. They love going for a walk. Mm. So why don't they love putting their harness on? And it's like you said, it's just lumping in those pieces of the experience and thinking about how our dogs are are experiencing it, I think is some some people are better at that than others, but I think that's the skill we could all improve upon. Yeah. <laughs> just thinking about how they're feeling. So you were talking about lumping. So yeah. so that's a, a term, that's a trainer term that we use for yeah. you know, grouping together something that's actually a bunch of little steps, taking it as one one step. And when we talk about splitting, it's the opposite of that. Sometimes to, and I know for me in the past, it's felt this way. Sometimes when we think about splitting, it feels very slow. Mm. It feels like, oh my gosh, I have to break this down into teeny tiny steps and I'm never going to get anywhere. And I have to keep going back to these, the step before, and I can't actually make progress. But it's again, a counterintuitive thing where slow is fast and fast is slow. And if we actually break things down in the long run, we are going to get there a lot faster than if we just get it done. Because then in in that case, in the long run, you know, maybe we spend five minutes chasing our dog around the house to get to try to put their harness on and to get them to take to, to take them for a walk. If you're taking them for a walk every day or maybe multiple times a day then those five minutes add up and those five minutes are going to get longer mm-hmm. as your dog continues to learn that they can avoid this unpleasant experience. If they just stay out of your reach that much longer arms length plus two inches. And so that's actually going to take you a lot more time in the future than if you spend those five minutes slowing it down and putting the harness out and letting your dog approach and giving them a treat and then letting them move away. Like you said, take some pressure off and just slow that process down. Yeah. Maybe it will take five minutes. Maybe it will take 10 minutes the first few times that you do it. But then after that, it's going to take less and less time versus the opposite. When we just lump all that together and give it in one go, it's going to start taking longer and longer. If it's something our dog finds unpleasant. We, we see it in so many aspects of dog training where the quick and nasty method mm-hmm. gets, gets results really fast. Mm-hmm. But then we quickly see a plateau and then often see a decline. And so mm-hmm. you're absolutely right. Like long term, that is not the fastest way to do it. You know, if you broke that down over a six month period or sometimes one month period, you know, get the harness on, rush them out the door and go for a walk. Well, that, that in a couple of weeks time can very quickly become that five minute chase around the house. And Mm -hmm. then another couple of weeks later, you're not just chasing them around the house. Once you let them off the lead, then all of a sudden you chase them around the park because (laughs) when I see that with people, they'll call me and they'll go, Oh, I've got a recall problem. They might not even call me about the harness. I've got a recall Mm -hmm. problem. And I'm like, okay, we'll go out for a walk then. We'll, we'll take them out. Go on, um, let's, let's get the dog ready. And they'll then spend the next five minutes chasing the dog around the house to get the, to get the harness on. And I'm like, 
you don't have a recall problem in the park. You've got a recall problem, period. (laughs) You've got an approach problem, right? It's not even just about recall. It's just your dog doesn't want to come near you because they know that unpleasant things are going to happen. And when you call them, that means unpleasant things happen. Yeah. And then when I say to them, hey, look, we need to work on this in the home before we practice this outside, they're kind of baffled. Because in their mind, well, I do get out the house every day. I do get the harness on the dog every day. And he's just, it's really annoying for me when he doesn't come back in the park. But the thing is, that's the annoying part because that's where you've got least control. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's how your dog mm-hmm. feels. <laughs> that's how yeah. your dog feels like in the apartment. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really important. Like it's the same thing. And that co- cooperative care, like that, it goes all the way into recall and engagement training, doesn't it? it it's not just mm-hmm. your your husbandry and your grooming. It it really is that relationship between mm-hmm. the guardian and the dog, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and like you were saying, that lack of control that that person is experiencing when they can't get their dog to come back to them at the park. That's what our dogs feel like most of their lives right like we we take so much of their control away from them like we just just part of living as a dog in the human world like that's inherent there's we can't entirely avoid that (laughs) there's no way that we can just give our dog 100% control of everything all the time that's impractical that's not what we're suggesting but what we are suggesting is finding as many ways as possible to increase that control Cooperative care is just one of the ways we can do that. Um, but it is, it is so usually it's a daily sort of occurrence. Like, you know, once people start to learn about what cooperative care means, I think they, I see this in my clients a lot. They start to think about, they realize how many different areas it applies. Mm. So we may start thinking about, I want my dog to be cooperative with their nail trims and I only trim their nails, you know, every couple of weeks or whenever I, I trim my dog's nails a lot. Cause I think it's fun because we, we teach it as cooperative cares and they enjoy it too. Um, I'll try to get Gracie to go eat a reset treat just to give her a break. And she jumps right back on the couch where we do our nail trims. Like she's like, no, you can't get rid of me. I'm not done. This is fun. <laughs> um, like imagine that, right? Some people are hearing that like, no way that would never happen. I'm telling you, Jack does this and he used to be the dog who would cower, hide, run, do everything in his power to wrestle away and get away from nail trimming. So it is possible. Um, and then I lost my train of thought. Oh, so, <laughs> so little ways that we can give some of that control back to our dogs and cooperative care is just sort of a starting point. I think once we, once we learn that communication or that language that we can share with our dogs, we start to see all the different places where it can apply in our day-to-day lives with them. And it just makes living with them a lot better, a lot easier. And probably for them makes living with us a lot more pleasant. <laughs> yeah. I, I think um, something that we are often in, encouraging, you know, people to, to engage with when it comes to communicating with our dogs. Um, and I've talked about this on the podcast previously, but I think the, the model, there's a lot of language in dog training, like obedience, um, which mm-hmm. has been a little bit, 
it's ruined a little bit of a few things like oh uh, well the because the, the communication style historically between dogs is we instruct dog obeys um whereas yeah what we're trying to encourage people to engage with is a dialogue where you know if, if you su- make a suggestion if you ask something if you indicate you want to do something with your dog you're waiting for the dog's response and we're engaging in a dialogue back and forth. Now, like you said a second ago, we, we don't, we, the idea of giving our dogs ultimate freedom is just not reality, right? We live in a mm-hmm. human world. We have got to do certain things with our dogs, but it doesn't mean we have to be assholes about it and just, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and just bully them into stuff. We can yeah. make it pleasant for them. Um, yeah. And, engaging in that dialogue is a really respectful way of doing it for mm-hmm. me as well. It, it's, it comes, comes back to us is that relationship as well. It's so much nicer to be in a relationship mm-hmm. like that, like for both parties, in my opinion, mm-hmm. well, I don't yeah. know how you feel about that, but. Well, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, no, I'm just, I'm just thinking of like, um, I, I always talk about these, uh, this is not my terminology, but I, I always, we always talk about no choice moments mm. in cooperative care and in just living with our dogs where there will be times where something has to happen for your own safety or your own well-being or, or sometimes for my safety and well-being, <laughs> mm-hmm. something has to happen in this moment and you don't have the option to say no. Um, and we also need to have there's a little bark. <laughs> um, we also need to have ways to communicate that with our dogs because we need, to, you know, we want to use our start buttons in our cooperative care to tell them when they do have a choice, but we also have to be able to inform them when they don't. And that's also making those things really clear and distinct is one way that we can um, not undermine our progress. Because I know that's another thing people are often concerned about with cooperative care is that (laughs) I'm breaking things down and I'm going at my dog's pace, but then, you know, there's an emergency that happens. And so we have to, you know, get something done at the vet or we have to get in the car or, you know, something like that. And we, We're working on doing this slowly, but now there's an, an urgent situation. Um, one I've one I've been is uh, say your dog theoretically, not that this is ever, you know, Grace has never done this, but theoretically rolls in a stinky rotten fish, right? <laughs> and, <laughs> and we're working on baths being cooperative and pleasant, but we haven't gotten to the point where we can do an entire bath with it, you know, with it being pleasant and cooperative. Hmm. And then she, you know, theoretically, she would never do this. Rolls in a stinky, <laughs> stinky rotten fish, theoretically, right? <laughs> um, so, so we do have, we can find ways to differentiate that for our dogs and let them know this is not a choice time. We have to do this. And making that more clear helps, helps ensure that we're not setting back all our progress as opposed to saying, here you have a choice and then they say no and you say oh just kidding we have to do it (laughs) (laughs) that's for sure gonna undermine that relationship you've built and all of that 
a progress and r- rapport that you've built up with them. Yeah. That's just a real quick way to undermine that and yeah. undo all of that work. Um, so but having me- different ways to communicate. I love this. Uh, can you give me an example of how you might mm-hmm. communicate this is a no choice moment? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, so in that example, you know, theoretically, this is all theoretical. Isn't that right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Gracie, Gracie doesn't even roll on her back. Yeah. <laughs> no, of course not. Never. <laughs> Everyone who sees me on Instagram knows that it's immediately an entirely bold faced lie. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Constantly, constantly rolling on things. Um, so, so the way that I've communicated that with there in the past. So there's lots of different options. I'm not saying this is the way to do it um, for your specific dog. There may be a better way, obviously. Um, but this is just what's worked for us. Is that um, when when we're working on cooperative care baths, um, you know, where she's hopping in on her own, um, she's I'm not touching her, restraining her in any way. She has the option to jump out at any time. I'm using treats periodically throughout the whole process. So that's what our cooperative care picture looks like. And then the no choice moment, um, what that looks like is she's actually, she's wearing a collar. So that's another difference. That's a context cue for her. If she's not wearing a collar and wearing the bath, this is choice. If she is wearing a collar, this is not a choice. Um, and during the process, I just keep my hand on her collar through the entire, through the entire bath. So it's, it's a one-handed bath. It's a little clumsy for me, but I just keep my hand there, switch hands when I need to, the, the bath happens. And then at the end, the treats happen. So the way I'm using food and then the way that I'm setting up the picture, um, is different. And I will clarify too, that with the collar, um, we've worked on me holding her collar being a positive thing and her not being, you know, um, upset by that. And I'm also not, um, not, I, I say touching her collar because that's really what I'm doing. Like I'm not holding her, straining her by you know, I'm not strong arming her to stay in. Um, it's just that way of me telling her like, we're staying here. There, there has been, you know, a moment or two where you're like, could I please get out? And I just say, sorry, not right now. Like we're just, we're staying here. And my goal is that the times I have to do that are vastly outweighed by the times that I make it a choice. So I really only want to use that no choice if I absolutely have to. And even sometimes, you know, she'll roll in something else and it's not that terrible. And I can just use uh, you know, wipe her down, do like a, a sponge bath and we don't actually have to do a full bath. So yeah. I'm going to avoid that no choice moment as much as I possibly can. But I still want to think, um, sometimes think proactively so I can have this plan in my head of like, all right, if I need to get this thing done, how can I make that look as different as possible for her so that she can tell, she can differentiate these two scenarios? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Thank you detailing i think that's so good because i think it's really important like the the difference between that and you said it yourself but just to i think it's such an important point i'm going to reiterate it the difference between that you're going to have moments i think it dogs are also aware of this to some degree or they just seem to be just as forgiving as us in a relationship where there's a lot of trust there in every relationship there's going to be moments where one party doesn't get their way Mm -hmm. And 
if we go about those moments like you just described, that is pretty much the goal, right? That's the end goal to get there. And those moments aren't always pretty. They're not always, mm -hmm. you know, they, they're oftentimes when mm -hmm. we're frustrated. They're oftentimes when the dog's frustrated. Neither one of you would, both of you would probably rather not be doing that, right? <laughs> but, mm -hmm. but you go about it with that approach. It's going to be so much more healthy than, you know, strong arming and using uh, too much restraint. Um, and definitely, I think the point I was going to reiterate was if you go into it, with a hey you've got initially hey you've got a choice not really that's mm -hmm. gonna burn the relationship like i've got this um really cool client uh he for a long time i was using this analogy around the relationships around um it's like an it's like an account right every time mm -hmm. you put uh you do something positive you put something uh, you put deposits into your account and you build up your trust account. Mm -hmm. uh, every time you do something negative, you make a withdrawal. And I was using that for a long time. And then this client who is a banker, he and or more importantly, a father, he said to me, yeah, that's all well and good, mate. But every time you make a withdrawal, it comes with interest. And it mm -hmm. doesn't, it, they're not equal. And so you, mm -hmm. your, your point on, I try to make sure that the, the negative ones or the, the no choice ones, not necessarily negative, are, um, are minimal. But I really try to make sure that the ratio is far higher for the, for the consent ones. Because every time I do make a withdrawal, I don't just take that much out. I've got to account for a bit more as well. Because those stick mm -hmm. in the memory. I, uh, you know, you can have a relationship with somebody for years based on, you know, all nothing but good things and then they can break your trust in an instant and you're like oh no they're a dick um, and you might have known them for years right it's it's a yeah. very it's a it, it's one of these things trust is aren't um but it, and it can be it can be harder but it can be very easily broken mm -hmm. yeah yeah and not only do i want to make sure that those consent-based or choice-based experiences far outweigh the no-choice ones. But I also say I haven't prepared myself for this eventuality. Like an example is that, um, you know, my my dog is chewing on a stick and they get a piece of the stick t stuck between their teeth and I need to get it out. And it's bothering them and they're pawing at their face and they're making all these weird, you know, faces with their mouth trying to get it out and they can't get it out. That's not something I've practiced before. <laughs> like, I have not just done cooperative care sessions to try to build up to that point. That's not something that's on my list. <laughs> um, so I do, I get it done. And then I make a mental note of that. Mm. And I think, how can I make that better in the future? How can I minimize that stress? And an important thing to, I don't know if I've pointed this out already, but if so, I'm reiterating it because it's very important, um, is that our goal with cooperative care is almost never, I'm going to say, to completely eliminate any stress or discomfort that our dog is experiencing. That would be nice, but with with a lot of these things, 
they're not, and they're not inherently pleasant. Like, you know, it's, it's right. some dogs really love water and a bath is going to be super fun for them. Great. Um, but for a lot of dogs, there is going to be some level of like, oh, I don't really want to do this. Or this is kind of uncomfortable. Like that's sometimes uncomfortable things do happen and we're not going to completely make that positive. That's especially true um, if our dog already has a negative learning history or aversive learning history with it. So if they already have trauma around vet visits or they already have traumatic experiences with nail trims or brushing or whatever it may be, we're probably never going to get to that point where that is 100% stress-free. Mm. But our goal is to reduce that stress as much as possible and give them as much choice as possible, which will further decrease that stress. So I'm not expecting that my dog is going to, and I'm speaking about my example again with Gracie, who has some trauma related to vet visits. I'm not going to expect that she is super thrilled and enthusiastic and wiggling on up to the veterinarian and just so happy to be there. It would be nice, right? Maybe one day, but that's not my goal because if that's my goal, I'm going to feel really defeated every time that's not where I end up. So I want to have a reasonable goal and my goal is just to reduce that stress as much as possible. So I think, so this relates back to those situations where I haven't prepared specifically for that situation. Mm. It's maybe going to be a little unpleasant, but if I have built this relationship of trust, which we are using a label, which could, could really be benefit um, with some operationalizing of what that actually looks like. But um, if I have built up this way to communicate with my dog, I can pull from those, that, that framework of communication to make those emergency or surprise situations more predictable, again, coming back to predictability and less stressful, therefore less stressful for them. Yeah. I hope that made sense in some way. I think that's all sense. over the place. No, not at all. Like uh, the the point of um the point around it doesn't it's not always going to be rainbows. In fact, it, it might never be rainbows. Um and I feel like sometimes that's some like shade thrown at the force free community. By, I was just going to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, it's like, oh, not mm-hmm. everything could be Christmas. No, we didn't expect it to, you moron. Like, it's... <laughs> it's um, You're making our point for us. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, it's life. And, yeah, life happens. And that seems to be an argument. Oh, adversives are going to happen. It doesn't mean that we have to add more into our mm-hmm. training and our care plan. Like, the relationship mm-hmm. I had with my old dog, my first dog is vastly different to the current relationship I've got with my dogs now. And it doesn't mean that I love my dog less or anything like that, but I gave her far less agency and choice. And as I look back, I don't look, I don't, I don't lose sleep over it or anything like that, but I certainly have moments where I go, Oh man, I could absolutely have been I've done better. I've been better. Mm-hmm. And, and it normally comes down to those factors. Like you learn though, right? Like, you know, I, I feel like a lot of us, we do, we can get hung up on that guilt. Um, and I think it's important to be aware that I did those things, but it's also important that they don't cripple me. And I use, I use them as motivation to continue to strive to be 
more engage more with my dog to listen more to my dog um because yeah like i say the, the, the relationships there's no less love there's there's no less connection on my end <laughs> right? mm-hmm. but i i there are there's times now where i'm like oh man i i really wish i'd given my dog choice in that moment and i just didn't know better i just didn't know better kind of went yeah, and, and um yeah i i think you were mentioning before that this this approach or this philosophy is not just this mindset, I guess, is not just specific to cooperative care, husbandry tasks. It is sort of a, just the way that we're entering our relationship with our dogs that is so contrary to the traditional, you know, obedience and command and response and, you know, our dog listening and, and us having control over our dog and them doing what we say. Mm-hmm. Um, it's flipping that pretty much on its head and saying, no, actually we want, we want my, I want my dog to be in control in, in some certain situations, knowing again, that for a lot of situations living with a human, they're not in control and that isn't fun. That doesn't feel good. So we want to make those opportunities for control. We want to give them those opportunities and cooperative care is just one of those ways that we can do that. Yeah. Yeah. Is there any, anything else you want to add to the conversation today? I feel like we've covered so many cool things. Is there anything else you want to, you think, eh, it'd be good if people heard that? Yeah, it's, I was just sort of thinking, okay, if I'm a, if I'm a dog guardian listening to this, this is all sounds great, nice, awesome. How, like, where do I start? <laughs> like, if I want to get started with cooperative care, what do I do? What does that actually look like? Yeah. So I I would first ask yourself, where is so first just sort of building that that communication of waiting for your dog to be ready and you can do that using skills that your dog already knows sort of like you were saying earlier Ian of you say ready and you look for that engagement and then you ask for the next behavior so even something as simple as that rather than just throwing sit down punch at your dog waiting for them to opt in before you ask for a thing that's a really simple way to start to build that communication with your dog. And then thinking more, um, more directly about the, the care task or the project that you want to work towards, say it's nail trips. Um, think and find out where is a starting point that's not stressful for your dog. So where, where in that process, that sequence, that pattern of events, where could you start that they're not going to be stressed or avoidant? And maybe that is just simply that you walk into the room or you walk over to the the spot where the nail clippers are kept. Um, maybe you touch or pick up the nail clippers and, and that's your starting point. Wherever that, wherever your dog doesn't go right into, nope, <laughs> avoiding that. Um, so that's your starting point. And then think about splitting that experience down, like we were saying before. Um, how you're going to let your dog communicate when they're ready for the next thing. Um, you can start that really simply with something that they're not already stressed by. Um, so when, when I'm teaching this with my clients, sometimes we will start, if our goal is nail trims, we'll start by holding a toy in our hand rather than the nail clippers because our dog doesn't have a negative experience with that toy. And so then we work on that 
another thing we want to learn or think about our prerequisite skills. What does my dog need to do or know in order to complete this project? So in nail trims, one thing that my dog needs to know is that I'm holding something in my hand and I'm bringing it towards your foot. That is a skill. We're breaking that out from the rest of it. So I might hold a toy in my hand and each time they say, all right, go ahead. I'm bringing that toy progressively towards their foot. And that might, you know, that might take like four or five repetitions before they're like, oh, okay, you're going to touch my foot with that. I don't care. Right. It might take longer. It might take less time. Just depends on the dog. But we're finding a, a starting point that's not stressful for them. So holding a toy in my hand is not stressful for most dogs. I'm not going to say all, but most dogs. <laughs> and then the skill of now I'm going to touch your foot with this thing. Starting there. So starting with a skill that our dogs either already know or could easily learn and a, a version of that end goal that is not stressful for them. And then you just put those pieces together. You work towards things that are progressively more like that end goal. So I'm going to go from holding a toy to holding um, a pen because the pen is hard like the nail trimmers are, right? So not like a soft, squishy thing. It's now this harder thing that's going to come and touch your foot. And then swapping back to the nail clippers once we've built that skill of touch my foot with a thing in your hand. Yeah. And just gradually work towards that in as little steps as you can think of, really. Because if you have smaller steps, you're going to be able to go through them more quickly. It's better to have, you know, start with less than you think you need so you can progress through that than to jump too far ahead and have to backtrack. Yeah. And I'm going to I'm gonna add a little bit in here. We touched on this earlier around how long this might take. And something that I think is so important when it comes to just your overall life with your dog and how this ties in is we often put emphasis on these big tasks, like cutting the nails, like going for a walk, but the value that is, you're going to get more value out of your relationship and you're going to get more fulfillment in general. If you invest that energy into making it a healthy interaction, if you I'm going to go go back to the harness for a second because the dog walk is a walk is something that we think the dog will love it. Right. So we, the walk could look like, well, I grab the harness. I chase the dog around. I restrain the dog. I put the dog in the harness. We go for a walk. He gets to run around. He doesn't come back. I get the dog, restrain the dog. I bring him home. Mm -hmm. That is probably a pretty stressful hour of you and your dog's day rather Mm -hmm. than a fulfilling enriching hour of your dog's day. And Mm -hmm. I think we can get hung up on, well, my dog, he needs to walk. Whereas Mm -hmm. I seem far more value going, you know what, if you've got an hour, you you've got an hour spare for your day. Um, I want you to invest that in communication, building a relationship, building a rapport, building, just, just building that connection through cooperative care, like taking, if it takes you half an hour to put the harness on that way or not to mm-hmm. invest 20 minutes of getting closer to building your dog's trust around putting the harness on and then just spending some time on the sofa, that is going to be a much more pleasant hour of your day for your dog's day. And it's not going to be detrimental for future things in your relationship with your dog. We have Sometimes we have mm-hmm. to zoom out of what our 
expectation was we go we on a micro level we talked about patterns and how if we go down the wrong rabbit hole we can go down the wrong rabbit hole (laughs) (laughs) but if we zoom out of that take stock and go do you know what i i don't want to go down that rabbit hole anymore i want to reinvest in something that builds trust builds relationship builds connection it's going to pay off in the long run in so many different ways and sometimes we get way too hung up on that end goal and we just keep pushing and pushing and pushing for it. And we, rather than getting into the pattern, we get into a rut mm. that gets harder and harder. We're spinning our wheels and it's getting deeper and deeper. And surprisingly, sometimes it's like totally dropping it for a period of time, a couple of months. Don't, don't even touch it. Don't go near it. Don't look at it. Don't think about it for a couple of months. And then come back to it. Surprisingly, behavior has changed in that amount of time and your dog has learned different things in that amount of time. And so you start somewhat over and you're in a, they're, they're in a better place to learn what you're trying to teach. You're maybe in a better place to start to to try to work on it because you're not so frustrated because you've been trying and it hasn't been making a difference. So just like, yeah, like you're saying, take a step back. Focus more on your relationship and what you both enjoy than this one thing that's eating you up and making you frustrated and making you mad. Hmm. And I will also say that we've talked about going at your dog's pace, and that is very important. We we don't want to push them um, too too far too soon to where they're you know <laughs> revolting. Um, <laughs> they're you know they're they're trying to. To avoid it but also I, I sometimes get very sad <laughs> when um when people talk about how long positive reinforcement takes and it takes so long to to work or speaking more specifically to cooperative care that you know I hear I hear people who say that like they've been working on nail trims for three years with their dog and they're finally getting to the point where they can touch their dog's paw. <laughs> so then and that, if that's the case, I have a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, like why, why is this taking so long? We should be seeing progress. If we're not, maybe we need to back up and ask other questions. Like, is there something physical going on here? That is, you know, is your dog in pain? And is that why they're so avoidant of, of having you handle their limbs? Or have you dug yourself into this rut where you've unintentionally taught a different behavior than you were trying to teach and you need to step back and switch things up or take a break and switch things up and then you'll see that you can make progress ahead. And I don't know if I'm going too long here, but I I just recently had a uh, was talking with a client who had been working on nail trims with their dog and they kept getting to this point where they they had a Dremel that was going. They worked on all these different prerequisite skills that they can pick the dog's paw up. They can the dog can hear the Dremel going, and that's that's happy for them. They can uh, use the Dremel on something else other than their dog's toenail. I don't remember what it was. I think maybe a chopstick or like some some wooden skewer or something. So the, that sound is different. So they've worked on all those pieces, and then they just keep getting to this point where as soon as they touch their dog's toenail with that Dremel, the dog pops up. They, they had been laying down. And then as soon as they touch that dog pops up and they, they're seeing that as that's where they opt out. That's where they're saying no. And they keep getting there and they keep getting there. And they've worked on all these different approximations and they've worked on 
breaking it down in all these different ways, every single way that I can think of. <laughs> and they keep getting to that stuck point where that's where, that's where we, we can't go any further. And so what I suggested was just do the whole thing differently. They've been, you know, in this same sort of, they've been in the same spot. They've been using this specific map. They're doing it at this time of day. The dog is doing this behavior first. So I said, just go and try doing a completely different spot, go in a different part of the house, do it at a different time of day, have your dog standing up rather than laying down, you know, wear a hat, you know, just like all these different things just to make it just totally flip it on its head rather than trying to get, because that pattern can backfire on you and you can start to get into a rut if you, if you do sort of rely on that too much or, you, you know, goes off somewhere somehow, maybe we don't even know where, but we can just sometimes switching that up. So all that to say, if it is taking a very, very long time and you're feeling like you're seeing just infinitesimal progress, at least in my experience, it doesn't have to be that way. Um, yeah. And there, there are usually reasons why. And, and we, my goal is always that, you know, we're seeing some amount of progress every time we work on it. Yeah. Whether that's, you know, progress that towards that end goal, or maybe it's thinking of progress, quote unquote, a little bit differently. Um, but you know, just the time that these things take and changing how we think about that. Yeah. Like getting uh, and something else to, on that, just getting uh, a different pair of eyes on it is often the quickest way to make change. Like mm-hmm. I, I, I'm fortunate enough to have a little team of dog trainers and the amount of times where I will ask them or another colleague for a perspective because we can, we can get caught in our own head. And, you know, you think you're doing everything you can. And then somebody just goes, oh, no, just do it with your left hand. All right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And when you're in the thick of it, you can't see it. You, you know, can't see the forest through the trees because you're just like so overwhelmed. I mean, I, I, it sounded like you're talking about you're consulting about your clients, but I will say that that's true of me and my own dogs. Like, oh, well, that's I, actually you know, what I was talking about, yeah. Yeah, okay, perfect, yeah. right? So, like, you know, even me knowing all the things or many of the things, I'm not claiming to know everything, but um, I can't see it clearly because I'm in the middle of it. And so if I can just get that outside perspective, it's sort of like, duh, Jill, why didn't you think of that? <laughs> uh, I just didn't think of it, and that's okay. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so... As as often often we end up saying is the best thing you can do is reach out to a qualified trainer yep. <laughs> and get some individual help. Um, and I, I know that you know cooperative care can sometimes see like one of the seem like one of those things that's like well it would be nice if you know but it's it's not necessarily a priority when it's you know my dog is barking and lunging on leash because you know every time I see another dog and go out of the house that feels like more urgent to us than. You know, my dog doesn't like putting their harness on, but actually those two things can be very much related. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so it's not as, it's not as ancillary as it may seem. No, that's absolutely right. I, I had a, a client yesterday just inquiring and they're trying to do all the things they're working with reactivity, they're working with cooperative care. And they said, I don't know which one to prioritize. And I said, honestly, this is over the phone. Me neither right now. 
<laughs> right, right. <laughs> but that's one of the things that we're going to go through is like, where are you going to get the most value for like the holistic health of that relationship for that dog for you? Where are you going to get mm-hmm. the most value? And that's going to be the one of the first things I look at when we meet this client. I can't wait because they're mm-hmm. obviously trying all the right things. So this is like dream client. And yep. it's really cool. It's like, okay, well, I don't, right now, I don't know, but let's have a look at all of this because there's so many things to break down, but there's also so many, only so many hours in the day. So let's go and have a look at where you're going to get the most value out of your investment. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love those sorts of clients too, where they're, you know, they're doing all the things, but something's not, something's yeah. not lining up. And I think those are maybe becoming more common as, Social media expands and information, good information is more widely available, which is great. Yeah. But then people do sort of get overwhelmed and and don't know what to prioritize or what to work on first, second, third, or, you know, they've got all these different puzzle toys and different things they're doing with their dogs, but they're just sort of throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what sticks. It's a, um, it's a better problem to have than when people would it is. think so. <laughs> yeah. It is. Well, sometimes. Sometimes. Say sometimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Usually, Sometimes but... you go in there and you're like, you've not done much, but now we have a clean slate. <laughs> right, exactly. We have all the options open to us. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Yeah. Joe, we're gonna we're gonna wrap this up right now. I wanna uh if you don't mind just letting everybody know where they can find you, that'd be fantastic because I know you've got some amazing resources out there. You do some awesome work. So the more people that can find you, the better the happier dogs will be and the better people will be. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, so the easiest place to find me is going to be Instagram. That's where I am most often. Um, you can hang out and participate in Will Jack Chew It Wednesdays, like we were <laughs> talking about in the beginning. So Instagram at Jack and Jill Dog Training um, there. And then, you know, you can also find me through my website, which is Jack and Jill Dog Training.com. Those are going to be the main places to find me. And I would love to have folks um, introduce themselves if they find me on here and want to say hi. I would love to you know, connect that way. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. Thanks so much for listening. That's it for this week, guys. If you ever want to ask questions, give feedback, or just provide some suggestions regarding the podcast, find me on Ian Shivers Dog Advocate on Instagram. I'll be happy to help. If you're feeling really generous, leave us a review on whatever platform it is that you're listening to this podcast on. And if you want to nerd out more with us, then find our sponsors because they're the ones that make all of this possible. See you next week. This episode is sponsored by Canine Caregivers. I've had so many people reach out to me over the years, not knowing where to turn to online for reliable and consistent advice on how to raise a healthy and happy dog. The information out there is hard to navigate. It's hard to know who to trust and who not to trust. And frankly, some of it is just downright dangerous. That's why we created Canine Caregivers, a place where you can come and get educational resources and access a supportive community founded on the care approach for people just like you, whether you've just brought a dog into your life or you've got a dog that is experiencing some unwanted behaviors. The content is updated regularly and we constantly keep in touch with our members to make sure that we are bringing relevant and up-to-date content that truly matters to you. There's different tiers of membership for different needs. So you can be sure that you don't have to break the bank to access the information that can literally make all the difference to the quality of life between you and your dog. Head to caninecaregivers.com.au to learn more.